looking at this this little series we've done, a little series within a series, you might say, out of the book of Philippians that started in Philippians 3.10, where G, uh, Paul tells us, instructs us to become like Jesus in, uh, in, in death and in life, okay? And so last week we took that idea and we jumped out of uh, Philippians into the book of Ephesians, which is where we'll be today. We'll kind of introduce the second half of the teaching that we started last week. And the premise of all this being that we have been given this incredible, this powerful command to become like God, not to be God. Obviously, there's a whole talk on this that we talked about last week, so I want you to listen to that. But I, I'm not saying we actually become God, but the cross shows us God desires us to be like him. And so in the spirit of, of really trying to celebrate Lent in this room and outside of this room, I thought it fitting that we spend this month leading up to Easter, or it's three weeks now, reflecting on the role Jesus' cross plays in our lives, since it is so central uh, to the Easter story. We tend to look at the cross as uh, it can be something we wear on our necks. Uh, oftentimes it's tattooed on people. It's an icon in uh, culture. There's uh, artwork that is actually surrounding it. Everywhere you go, the, the cross has some type of uh, reflection in culture. But the most important image we're going to talk about today is the one that it plays in our lives, the image that it kind of fashions into our own hearts. And so the verse we're studying today is the second half of a couple of verses we began looking at last week, which show us for as rich, deep, and complex as the Christian faith can be at times, and it can very much be all of those things, its most basic and fundamental teaching, the teaching that informs every teaching in the Bible, can be described in one powerful word, word love. The word love. In that word, the premise of the whole Christian faith can be seen. Now, just as a caveat here, don't hear me saying that love is the only thing in the Christian faith. But for this next month, since the, the coming of Jesus shows us that Jesus loved us deeply and died for us, we're going to turn the prism of God's characteristics and look at this one. In the word love, the premise of the whole Christian faith can be seen. So last week when we studied Ephesians 5.1, we set the stage for what we're studying today. We talked about this excessive amount of love that God showers upon us by declaring us his children, his beloved children, according to Ephesians. And if you're wondering how we're building the bridge about becoming like God, we talked about this idea of the, 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 the privileges that we have as children of, of our parents, right? In a healthy dynamic, our parents love us, nurture us, care for us, and over time, we actually start to become like them. That's the point of parenthood, one of them anyways. We are seeking to make positive deposits into our children so that they grow up and reflect the the healthy side of who we are. Obviously, the one difference here is that we as people have challenges and problems and failure points and issues, unlike God. And so when we take the earthly parenting uh, paradigm, we have to know that with God, we're talking about a perfect image. There is no fallenness or brokenness or sin in God. So the idea is that we grow and become like our Father in heaven. And that happens when we begin to dwell in and understand this excessive amount of love that God has for us. And so the cross truly shows us God wants us to become like him. And that message we talked about last week is prerequisite for our teaching today. As we talk about another particular way God wants us to be like him. Today we're going to take Paul's teaching on love a step further by looking at the connection he makes in these, these two verses. And this is a pretty common connection in scripture. In them he declares that when a person says they know or believe something about God, in this case that we are beloved children, right? That's what we talked about last week. The evidence that you actually know that in your heart is when you start to love others like Jesus loves you. So the, the big picture point we're making here is that to know something about God, this is something we've talked about here before, means that you actually begin to live in light of that reality, in light of that truth. And the truth we are talking about over this next month is that God loves you deeply. So the question then becomes, do you love others deeply, 
like God loves you? Do you live for them and love them and sacrifice for them and serve them? Obviously not in the the fullness of the glory of the way God does for us, but in the way that we as humans can press into that that rhythm. And so later on, towards the end, we'll read a very powerful passage from Corinthians about the theology of love in the Bible. But before we do that, we want to point out this underlying cross-truth that Paul layers onto the one we spoke about last week in both books, Philippians and Ephesians. In this passage, a very clear truth comes out when it comes to knowing God. And it is this. I promised you each week we'd have a, the cross shows us something about who God is and who we are. And we'll follow suit today. The cross shows us we can never separate what we say we know about God from the way we live for God. That's the importance of the cross. And that's why I say it's, it's a season. It's not just a singular event. Recognizing Easter Sunday, giving thanks for the resurrection is not just something we do on one Sunday out of the year. That event, the foundation of our faith and lives, was meant to change us forever. And so we can't just relegate it to one two-hour worship gathering on a Sunday. We have to see it as something deeply embedded in the DNA of who we are. I'll reread Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 for you. Now keep in mind, this is in tandem with Philippians. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, this couplet of verses pointedly tells us that in Christianity, genuine belief has to be validated by heartfelt action at some point. They teach us that what you believe about God, for you old schoolers here, this word, you'll know this word as doctrine, okay? That's what we used to call this back in the day. For you new schoolers, this will be something like belief or what we understand about God. Different, different terms, you might say, in the way our generations understand this. But at the end of the day, the point of this is that what we believe actually matters. It's really important. And over this past month, just so you see the premise of this, we've been talking about the doctrine or the theology of the cross, how what we understand about the cross and what Jesus did on it for us becomes a driving impetus for who we are and how we live. God intends those beliefs, whatever they are about him, to shape the way we live. And that is really the big idea here. And that's why after this teaching in both passages, right, we have Paul teaching us something about God. In Philippians, we understand this great love and joy that he can give us. In Ephesians, we're reading here about this fatherly love, which creates all that love and joy in us in both places, as well as you'll find in other areas of the Bible. When we have these incredibly important truths about who God is in our life, they are almost immediately followed up with something we're supposed to do in light of that. One is not more important than the other. Both are equally important and shape each other. In this case, we're talking about this this immeasurable love God has for us. If we put a period at the end of that sentence, we're going to develop a very imbalanced Christian life, become self, self-absorbed self and narcissistic. However, if we understand that God loves us deeply and in light of that desires us to love others, then that creates a life that is like Jesus. It becomes sacrificial, selfless, and the very love that drives us from God now begins to drive our love for other people. And so this whole teaching, both of them, bounces back and forth between living as a dearly beloved child of God, our identity in God, as we talked about last week, while simultaneously commanding us to, to do something, to walk in the way of love for others, as Jesus did for us. And so this is a statement I've said before in here, and but I'll say it again. The, the driving idea behind teachings like this, no matter where you find them in the Bible, or whatever the topic it is that it is addressing, okay? There are other places in the Bible where this idea, we'll talk about, I'll reread to you James here in a moment, where it talks about hearing God's word. Wherever, the, wherever this idea of who we are in Jesus, or what we understand about God, right? Whatever we understand about God has to shape us. We cannot separate those two things. 
The degree to which you say you know something in Christianity is always validated or invalidated by the way you show what you know to other people. So if you say you are loved by God but don't feel loved or love others, there's a question about that. All right? The cross shows us something here. It's a valuable life truth. And the truth here is that there actually can be a long-standing contradiction in us when we separate these two ideas. It shows us that we can actually receive, it. for example, when we talk about love and the nature of the cross, it's very easy at times for us to receive God's forgiveness, to dwell in God's love, to be thankful for his grace, but then to have a hard time showing it to others, if showing it at all. Because to be a child of God means your life is now defined by Jesus' love, right? That's the point we identified last week. That love we spoke about has to begin shaping how you live your life. And so naturally, with a word like love, okay, when, when you understand this word or when you think about it, to be truly loved by someone, when you have experienced love from someone or you show love to someone, that starts changing the nature of the relationship you have. We went to uh, great detail last week to talk about the fatherly love that a, a father has for their children and vice versa. And we talked about the, the spiritual reality that that is meant to reflect. So in a marital relationship or a relationship with a, a child, a family friend, whatever the relationship is, when there is mutual or reciprocal love, when there is experienced love, that should reshape your actions towards that person. And if you see counseling environments or have been involved in one, oftentimes this is what people are looking for to identify unhealthy relationships. They'll say something like, well, you know what? It's pretty clear in this relationship that you are deeply and selflessly and sacrificially loving you know, your spouse. I'll just use that as a metaphor, an example. But you are not returning that love. And what's happening here is you are now taking advantage of that love. There is no relational person on earth, whether you are a pastor or dealing with, you know, the discipline of psychology, which we don't fully agree with in all ways, but we validate a lot of that. We talk about this and say that it's universally known that it is not healthy to take advantage of somebody ever. And in this case, we're talking about what we do with the love that God shows us. When you know you are loved, it should cause you to deeply value the person that loves you. It should change the way you care for them. It should reorient what you do for them. And in the case of Christianity, as well as it is true with our, our most meaningful relationships in life, it should begin to redesign how we understand the word sacrifice for these folks, right? You ever heard a parent say, like, I jump in front of a bus for my kid, those types of ideas, or I take a bullet for my wife, or whatever it is, you know, whatever thing you're going to take or jump in front of. The idea is that you would do extraordinary things for the people you love and care for, Right? On all spectrums, that's a mark of healthy friendship. But if you were to do that for, for people and they were not doing it for you, or maybe they, they were in an unhealthy way taking advantage of it, it starts to really warp the paradigm. And so simply put, genuine love for someone is supposed to lead to action. It has to. Otherwise, we would call into question how deeply that person really understands what love is. And I'll just reread to you the most pointed verse we have in the whole Bible. This is my opinion. I don't think it's the right one. The most uh, uh, pointed verse we have in the whole Bible that makes this connection. The Apostle James penned in what is perhaps the most famous verse dealing with this knowing and doing connection. James 1.22, it'll be behind me. Do not merely listen to the word. He doesn't even talk about love here. He talks about the whole Bible. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. You have to do what it says. That's what he says. And so in this verse, which we have read before, James warns us to guard our hearts against a very dangerous form of religion. And when it comes to the cross, it's extra dangerous. It's when a person continually hears something about God, studies something about God, knows something about God, but then has a minimal desire or 
in today's modern culture, we can take this a step further. I think 20 years ago, if I was giving this talk, I would have said it's for, for the Christian. The big challenge of what James is dealing with is what happens when we hear things about God or study things about God or know things about God, but then don't desire to live them out in our life. That would have been probably the end of that sentence. But today there's a whole new era that we're dealing with. So we have to make this statement as well as add something to it. We have to say that there are a great many Christians who they don't even get to this section of their life. Of this verse, they get to the they're at a place in life where they don't even listen to anything God says. They don't have any desire at all to be in His Word, to pray, or to know God through community. And so, what happens is we used to say, if you hear what the Bible says, but then don't do it, or at least strive to do it, or think about why you should do it, that can be a real problem in your life. Today, we back to step up and say there are some people who follow God but never desire at all to even listen to what the Word says, and they like doubly deceive themselves. And so no matter where you are, you're, you're struggling with things, you don't care about things, you realize, hey, I've been a Christian for like five years, and I, don't, I think the word Bible is spelled with like a Z. If that's you, then there's a question that has to be answered here. If we have minimal or no desire to, to know God deeply, in this particular case, to know his love for us and the way that he wants to walk for others, there's a question mark that comes up at the end of our faith journey. And I'm not trying to call into doubt anything you are in Jesus as much as I am trying to marry this idea of a healthy warning that all of these men in the scripture give us. If you say that God loves you and you recognize the deep investment and the deposit he's made in you in Jesus, but yet you have no desire to invest or deposit into the lives of other people, there is a contradiction that has to be addressed. And James says, you've tricked yourself. According to Paul and Philippians, we will not become like Jesus and in Ephesians, we will stop living like beloved children of God. All go back to the foundational message we talked about last week. God doesn't want you to be like that. God wants you to be like him. The reason all of this is important, and this idea particularly, is this disconnect calls into question the authenticity of how deeply we understand something. And so to keep us from falling victim to this deception, we get these warnings in the scripture. And we can ask ourselves a couple of questions about our own lives, sort of diagnostic questions that can help us understand where we are or are not with this. James particularly gives us a very clear one. He tells us that genuine faith is not validated by what you hear from Scripture. That's part of the equation. It's validated all by, by what you do with what you hear. So there is your, your understanding of God has to shape what you begin to do. And so don't miss this. This is uh, an important idea I want to share with you. I want you to think about our world today, okay? And I want you to think about whether or not we are in a world that values doing more than it does hearing. For example, uh, you've probably never uh, turned on the radio and heard uh, action news, right? What do you hear? Talk news, right? <laughs> Talk news is designed to create massive audiences of people listening, all right? I'm not saying there aren't people in the world doing stuff. I'm just saying when we look at our world, most of it, most of the way we understand consuming any type of information, it's designed for you to sit in a place and listen. Even, even the modern form of the church, right? The reason we have such a deep understanding and important emphasis on community groups and mission and service outside of this place is because for a great many Christians, this environment becomes the number one way they begin to interact with God. It's a very important environment. Please hear me. Super important. But at the end of the day, if all you're doing is interacting with stuff you're hearing and not applying what you're hearing, it creates an issue. And in our world today, we just live in an information-oriented society. 
We live in a place where literature, periodicals, books, online sermons, music, you know, you don't even have to go home for this anymore. You can, you can literally be listening to all this stuff right now on your iPhone while I am giving you information. You can have like 13 venues of information being pumped into you. All good. I'm not knocking this in, in and of itself. What I'm saying is we live in a world really migra- that has migrated towards consuming information. And in the Christian faith, this can actually be a pretty powerful thing. So think about what happens if, if we take the fact that anything pretty much today that we want to know is available to us within minutes. You have places like a public library. You have uh, amazing amounts of, of uh, digital resources you can migrate towards to understand and know who God is. Right? There, there is also almost no limit to this now. What would happen if we moved away from just the information consumption to actually taking all those truths and beginning to live them out and apply them in life? This is like a double-edged sword. It's, it's an amazing opportunity we have that people just 20 or 25 years ago didn't have. But over time, what it's done is it's reshaped the way we learn. And in some senses, it's subtly trained us to live in this constant era of consumption. And that has created a problem in the Christian faith at times. Oftentimes, we can equate maturity with what we know about God. However, the Bible says that's only half the equation. You, the ultimate evidence, when in particular now, right, Easter's a coming. The ultimate evidence of what we know about God, in this case, the truth of the cross, at some point has to penetrate your heart. And after you hear that truth, the desire for what you do with it has to start, you have to start desiring to be like God with that. I don't know how else to say it. You start doing this stuff. And so James, Paul, Jesus, all the great men in the Bible, we'll talk about Moses here in a moment, they all begin to talk about this idea. These are like navigators in, in the, the journey of God, all the New Testament. And what these folks tell us is that we cannot separate these two ideas. Because when we do, we create a great problem. And this is an especially important problem with the foundational understanding of what love is. If we misunderstand love or don't understand it at all, it's going to reshape who we are. If we deeply understand what love is and how God shows it to us, it's going to deeply reshape us in a way that starts to look like God. And so getting this right matters because it's, it's sort of like a, it's a double-pronged problem in the sense that not only does misunderstanding this cause you to misunderstand who you are in God, your identity in Jesus, what we talked about last week, misunderstanding this can actually create uh, a roadblock in your life. You can actually become an impediment for other people experiencing the same grace. Think about it. If God says, I am the truth, and the cross teaches us that the truth sets us free, and Jesus dies for you, and he affirms this in your heart and shows you this on a regular basis, and then you come in contact with somebody who doesn't know that or doesn't experience that or has no love in their life or nobody that cares for them, and you don't, you don't pass that on, it creates a challenge it creates, frankly, what is one of the great forms of atheism in our world today. Oftentimes when we think about atheists, there's an academic bend to it, and there should be. But there's a great quote from a gentleman and author named Brennan Manning. You, if you are an old-school Christian, you will probably know this. This was like in every Christian song like 20 years ago. But it's not in any Christian song anymore. But the premise of what he said is this. I want to share with you, rather than illustrating how an atheist can derive something contradictory from our faith when we say God loves us, but we don't perpetuate it, I'll just give you what he summarized. He said this when describing this issue. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. And he went on to say that that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And so... Just from personal experience, 
I've had a lot of conversations with people who have academic or philosophical objections to the Christian faith. Those folks are out there. I was actually one of those people. But I can tell you I've had more conversations with people who bring this up. They've had some kind of experience with a Christian, sometimes not even right. That's a talk for another day. Sometimes there's a reverse judgmentalism that we need to talk about. But for today, we don't, we're not messing with that. Today, we're talking about the importance of recognizing what it means to profess a love for Jesus, but then to maybe have that love absent in the way that we carry ourselves with people. What we say has to shape what we do. What we understand has to shape what we do. Because in Christianity, our belief drives everything. This is why we want to really embrace the idea of theology here. We feel like it's important. We feel like it's important to know things about God in such a way that they begin to shape our life. These things are wrapped up in each other. And it leads me to the second thing I want to share with you this morning. When we think about the cross, right? The cross shows us God loves us. The cross shows us God wants us to be like him. The cross shows us that God eventually marries his, his declarations about us, that he loves us with action. At some point, what God says becomes something that God does. This shows us something very important here. Above all else, the cross shows us a genuine child of God has been set apart to walk in the way of love. The idea of who we are on earth now is we're, we're distributors of the love of God. In Ephesians 5, 1, 2, I'll just read it again. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. And here's why this is bolded and gave himself up for us. Okay? That's the cross we're talking about here as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you get a couple of interesting things here. You're told to follow God's example, become like God. So we talked about last week. We're told that we do this as dearly loved children. And then immediately we're told to do something. We're told to walk in the way of love. Why? Not because of some mechanical or rote love for God. We're told to do this because Jesus did this for us. He loved us and gave himself up for us. The motivation for why we walk in love is because Jesus has already walked and is currently walking in love for us. And it's important to point out here that these metaphors we're using here, somewhat less sensational than what we read about in Philippians. And that's why we're talking about them today. When we talked about Philippians last week in Philippians 3, there's this super important and absolutely true. But if I were to say to you, today I want you to leave this place and fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus Christ and become like him in death. That is very powerful and very important. But we would probably have a lot of questions about what it means to fellowship in the suffering of Jesus and become like him in death. There is a highbrow command that Paul gives us, definitely connected to a bunch of important clarifications. But for some people, that statement might be almost inaccessible to them at this point. And that's why I wanted to marry something that is absolutely accessible to us when we talk about walking in love, when we talk about becoming like God. It's important to point out here, the metaphor of walking in love is somewhat common and has always been the defining mark of God's people throughout history. If I were to tell you to die for Jesus, you would say, what does that mean? If I were to say, walk Walk for Jesus today, love him in a common and ordinary way, that's probably a little more clear to you. So in both Testaments, okay, we get this idea of walking, walking in love. And the most famous command we have that God gives us is in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. It's a Hebrew command based around a verb called the Shema. And in Jewish law, this idea, this this teaching, essential, a foundational teaching to God's people is wrapped up in Israel hearing something and doing something. Before they enter the promised land, they are told, listen, before you forget about me in heaven, God's speaking through Moses, I'm paraphrasing, he says, I need you guys to remember, 
the most important thing you can do before I make, make good on my promise here is to remember that above all else in life, don't love the land, don't love what the land gives you, love me, I gave you the land. That's what he says. Above all else, love me with your heart, your soul, and your mind. In this idea, okay, and, and uh, in a few verses down the road, Moses connects this idea with walking. He basically says this super important command of following God should be as common to you as walking. All right. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us the same thing. He uses different language, but he says the same thing. He connects this Deuteronomy 6 to a great teaching in the book of Matthew. And when asked what the most important thing to do when following God is, when asked like what the greatest law is, what the greatest command is, he tells now, right, a, a, a Jewish world slowly moving into Gentile territory, he tells them the same thing. He says, the most important thing you can do is love God and then love people. That's what he says. So think about this. Thousands of years, two people, culturally as different as they can become, Jew and Gentile, according to the Bible. They're both united under one command. This one right here. Moses... Jesus, Paul today, all tells us, they all tell us that God's key, the, the primary thing we need to do to follow God well, is hear and obey. And that's why a few verses later in Deuteronomy, Moses charges his people to, to do this on a regular basis. And he uses very, very, very common language, much like the language Paul uses in Ephesians. He says the way you love people should be like when you're sitting down and lying, going to sleep, when you're rising up, when you're walking. So why do we have these two forms of language? Well, here's my thought on this. The language is important because it begs a question. Why do we use such insignificant descriptions of such a significant and extravagant love? Well, in all places, particularly the one we're looking at here with Moses and Paul, I think what we're trying to be shown is that God calls us to display his extraordinary love on the cross to people in very ordinary ways. And so in the Christian world, it's very cool to say things like go change the world and you know, share the gospel and see a hemisphere change. This is very common rhetoric, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. But I think sometimes we've set the bar so high that we forget that that's probably not how God's going to use our lives. When we talk about the extreme or the great or the extravagant ways that we can love people, it's probably not going to be masses of people. I'm not saying God won't have that future for you. But what I am saying is that so often we have this ideal connected to these types of verses, that we miss the reality of what it means to practice this on a daily basis. Not to get on a plane and go somewhere, as important as that is. Not to pray to see the world change, as important as that is. But to just take the time to love a person sitting next to us. That's accessible for us, right? That is, I think, the way God has. I think it's undeniable in Scripture. We look at these events as sensational Right? Even the crosses kind of falls, falls under the same idea. Today we have Easter. But 2,000 years ago, this was just a Mediterranean peasant Jew nailed to a cross. That's the way the world looked at that. That's how they described Jesus. They looked at him and said, this is a criminal and he's going to die. The, the grandiose understanding we have of the cross today was not the one they had then. But it was through that common, you know, there were other people on the cross that day. Think about this. It wasn't even just him. He didn't even get the spotlight. Two other people were next to him. God uses this everyday discipline in the Roman world. They, they took people to the cross every day. He uses a, a very common event in the first century world, and he creates an uncommon change in the world. That's, I think, how we love. We love faithfully. We love out of fidelity to God. We display and show love whenever it comes to us or whenever we can show it. And we do it in very common ways, like walking. You, you could probably modernize this statement and say, like, you should love people 
in the same way you brush your teeth, in the same way you sit down on the couch after a long day of work, the same way you hug your kid when you come home, whatever it is. The idea here is that these are common things we do. I, for most of us, we probably just get up in the morning and brush our teeth. That's a good thing to do even if you don't believe what I'm saying here today, right? You get up and you brush your teeth. You don't have a reminder set in your phone. You just do it. This is the way love is described with these analogies. So think about this. Let's close here by talking about walking, since that's what Paul speaks of here. Walking is something that is pretty common to most of us, all right? We learn to do it as, as very small children, and then we do it rather naturally for the bulk of our life. We don't think about it when we do it anymore, most of us, right? There's a reason for this. And if you need proof of this, after service, just look around. Most of you are just going to get up and leave. You're not going to have any kind of uh, extemporaneous stretching activities. You're not going to Google, how do I walk out of a movie theater? You're not going to do any of that. You're just going to get up and go. Why? Because in your life, walking is just something you do. It is a natural action for you. Now, if you see people Googling at the church, you need to help them, okay? This is how love is supposed to be for us. I'm not trying to make this so simple that, that, I'm, that I, please hear me here. I'm not trying to be naive in saying that loving people can't be difficult at times. But I'm saying it should be natural, even in the difficulty, okay? For some people, this is not how they see love at all, though. There are many of us in life who, we hear teachings like this, and we have a very different understanding of love. For some people, loving is not like walking. It's actually sort of like preparing to run a marathon. And if you've ever seen somebody run a marathon, I've actually seen my wife do a few of these. She has run marathons. I have not. I've looked at that, and the preparation for that is crazy, okay? It, it, you don't just get up and do that. You can get up and do that, but you will die, like at mile six. That, that's what will happen. For some people, walking, uh, loving is not like walking. It's some really stressed out extemporaneous activity. It doesn't come natural at all. It requires months of preparation, strained focus. Sometimes people can't do it at all. This is the person who lives in a world where, contrary to what we're talking about today, irritability, frustration, stress, and impatience rule the day. It's not the doctrine of the cross that drives their life. It's, it's the bitterness of life that drives their life. It's hurt. It's anger. It's insecurity. It's, it's disappointment. For some people, what I am talking about today really is a far stretch to apply in their own lives. And for a great many people, the reason that is so is because all they have known is the other side of that fence. They've not known the love of the cross like we speak about. They have learned to and maybe even become comfortable in these other negative emotions. And because of that, a teaching like this can be hard for some people to process. They don't know the presence of the love of God. All they know is the absence of the love of God. And so what tends to happen here is a person like this begins to live a bit of a self-absorbed life. They live in a world where they can't or won't love others. The, the normal way they walk is to be hard and judgmental and calloused and, and hurtful. Because maybe it's just too hard for them. Maybe there is no metric at all for it. Or maybe, this goes back to the hearing and obeying, maybe they've heard these types of teachings and they've listened to what Jesus has said and they've just said, man, that is hard and inconvenient. And I'm just not going down that road. Maybe it's past experiences with people that have made you cold, defensive, or distant. Distant, Or perhaps uh, you're the person who, based on what we talked about last week and two weeks ago, you've, you've learned to love God, but in an unhealthy way. You love God and you think that what you do, you know, forget the, th forget the who you are in Jesus. Let's go to the other extreme here. What you do for God is what makes him love you. 
you know, we've already addressed that abuse. That's why we're looking at the other one today. If you're the type of person who says, I don't really know what God says about me, or I don't know his love at all, but I'm just going to do stuff for God because that's going to make him love me. That's going to create another problem. Because in your heart, you lack a genuine relational love for God, for the God you go through the motions for. Both of these create imbalanced love paradigms in our life. And so if this is you right now, or you just want to prepare yourself this day for the day when you face this struggle, I want you to hear this. Or if you really do get this in your heart, and you have truly been celebrating the season of Lent and the cross, you're dwelling in this and asking God to deepen these realities in you, no matter where you are. The command to be a people defined by love is very clear. It is common in the Bible, and that is because it is a common thing God shows us on a regular basis. Beginning with the creation of humanity, and he, he brought us life and then died for us to bring us life again. What I just shared with you, at least in this section, was somewhat of a, a negative list of things, Okay, at least in the back end, of the proper reflection of God's love. They're imbalances. We have to know those things because they create a litmus for us to begin asking whether or not we're walking with God properly. It's important to know that, but it's important that we don't close on that. We want to spend some time focusing on what Jesus-centered love looks like, what cross-centered love looks like. And since we've already highlighted how belief matters, I'll read to you what I think this is the most famous passage of love in the Bible. I know this because every time I marry somebody, they ask me to read it. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 1-10. And this is a great example in a very eloquent way it gives us a positive expression of what love is. And on occasion, I will read from the message here, and I'm going to do that this morning. Uh, this will deviate the translation we've been using this morning, which is the NIV. I want to read the message to you because I think, in a very poetic way, this captures the idea of what we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-10. Here's what Paul, again, speaks about. He's writing about love, all right? He says, If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but I don't have love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. And I'm just going to connect this to what we've been talking about. Remember in Matthew 22, three weeks ago, when Jesus said, hey, you guys are doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, and you're like whitewashed tombs? That's what he's talking about here. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. Here Paul's saying like, man, if you have the kind of faith that gets amazing things done, you get the doing side of the of Christianity done. You can make the mountain move, but you don't have love. You, you miss the point. You're nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Hearing, understanding, and obeying. Right there. It doesn't matter what I say, what I believe. When these things are disconnected from what I do or what I do is disconnected from what I hear, say, or believe, we're bankrupt here. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel. In other words, you take no joy in seeing others you know, suffer or be in pain. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit, but love never dies. 
And that's an interesting way to describe sort of in a summary of what we're talking about today. There's an interesting caution in this passage that reveals why love is so central to what we do as Christians. And the caution in this is that every deed in Christianity, and this is a talk where I'm talking about deeds, so hear me here, they're important. But you have to know that even in deeds, even in what we do, everything we do, our knowledge and study of God, our tithes and offerings to God, our service to God in, this wall, in these walls and outside of these walls, your generosity to your neighbor, sharing your faith, even being willing to die for Jesus, these can all be, and many times are, good indicators of maturity in Jesus, growth in Jesus. But according to Paul here, they will never be unmistakable, uh, un- unmistakable evidences. And the reason being, every one of those things can be faked. This is what we talked about three weeks ago. Every single thing that we just read about, every single thing I'm asking you to do this morning, and will ask you to do here in a moment, can be reduced to an external motion, disconnected from this deep-seated love and understanding of who God is that we just spoke about. In Corinthians, we learn an, an incredibly important truth about love. Paul teaches us that a person can fake every aspect of Christianity, everyone, except for one. What is the one you can't fake? Love. Two of you know that. Let's try that again. What is the one you can't fake? Love. And that is why this couplet of verses sits in the middle of a much larger teaching, dealing with the way the Christian lives. They remind us that our deeds for God, as important as they are, are only as good as the level of love we have for, for the God of the, of the deeds we do, right? And the neighbor that you love. In Christianity, we can fake rules and regulations, but you can't fake the hard attitude that informs those things. And that's why we started last week by talking about our identity in God. Don't separate these two things. They will both lead you down paths of problems. You may fool the world, according to Paul, but you will never fool God. And most likely, in our hearts, we will, we will know that we can't fool ourselves. Now, that's a hard-edged truth, and, but I need you to know the Bible isn't afraid of speaking that kind of stuff to us at times. I also need you to know that these hard-edged truths are never disconnected from the buttery goodness of God's grace in Jesus. And that is really what the cross teaches us. It, it communicates both a hard truth and a beautiful grace. And that's really how I want to leave you this morning. With a gracious reminder that if your life right now is plagued by a, a contentment to hear from God, but no desire to obey, if your life is defined by rigid obedience to the regulations of God, disconnected by the loving heart of God, in other words, unlike Paul said in the message, you, you take joy in seeing people grovel, that's a problem. If you're here saying, like, I'm doing the Christian thing on the outside, but I don't even know what it's like to talk to God. I've never even had a desire to do this. I hear you say each week you should read the Bible, but I don't. That's a, potent, that's, a, that's a problem, right? All of these things show us to a certain degree that if we don't desire to be in the presence of God, to understand who God is, to experience his love, to understand the cross, we will never get to the place in our lives where we find the type of peace and joy and hope Paul speaks about, nor will we able to be able to actually help others find that. And so if this is you, then use this opportunity right now to reconnect or perhaps connect your heart to Christ for the first time. God never leaves us with the problem. He always gives us the solution. Do as this text commands. Begin asking God what it means to pattern your life after the most pure form of love the world has ever seen. God in Christ on the cross. Because after all, his greatest deed, his willingness to die on the cross for us, right? For centuries, God told his people in the Old Testament, I love you. I love you. I'm serving you. I'm caring for you. You're running away from me. You're not listening to me. You're sinning against me. You're disobeying me. But I still love you. At the end of the day, what happened was he took all of that and then he died for us. His love, the the verbal declaration of his love was actually married to deed at some point. 
And that's why we celebrate Easter. This morning, I pray God would move so deeply in your heart that you would desire to live and love as a beloved child of God. Ask for that process to begin. If you have questions about that process, let us know. And I want to leave you with one very serious challenge. I promised you in January, multiple times over the year, we would revisit this idea. And this will be the fourth time that we have revisited it since January. And I hope you remember what I'm about to say. This season right now is a season where where we celebrate God's unwavering and sacrificial love for us. It's a season where we celebrate the reality of what we're talking about this morning. And in January, during our Vision Provision series, I introduced this idea of the power of two. And I said that over the course of this year, on multiple occasions, I was going to be kind of reintroducing this idea. Maybe you remember this. Maybe you don't. No matter where you're at, I I want to rekindle the idea. I said, we as a church can say, hey, we're going to change the world. We can do that. But that's a lot more difficult for us to wrap our hands around than it is for us to say, I'm going to start praying about two people that don't know Jesus or maybe are far from God or are hurting that I can begin loving in the name of Jesus. That is a realistic goal for us. And so in January, I said to be thinking and praying about the power of two. We're at a place now at Easter. This is the first time where I'm going to challenge those of you who have been praying about this to act on this. And those of you who have not been to, be, to consider acting upon it. Start praying about it. If each one of us on a regular basis identifies two people in our lives who do not know Jesus, what can happen is something pretty powerful. One is that it is an evidence that we won't just declare what the cross did for us on Easter Sunday. We actually are beginning to show maturity in the fact that the cross also did other things for other people. The cross is the declaration of God's forgiveness to the world. And for those who will receive it, they find life. So by practicing this or having a burden for this, it begins to show that we understand love, really understand it, and want others to understand it too. And so this morning, I want to ask you to press into this rhythm for the first time, or more deeply, if you have already committed to the challenge. For these next weeks, even in our Lent guide, we talk about this. I want you to ask if you have identified somebody in your life who you can pray for, bless in the name of Jesus, and invite to see the church family on Easter Sunday and at a great party afterwards. Is it time to start taking the power of two someplace? If this is not even a thought on your mind, then you have a different question to ask yourself. And it revolves around this idea. Let's heed James's warning and not let Easter just be something we talk about. Rather, let's let the story of God's love for us on the cross move us in such a way that we are compelled to act, serve, and share it with others. As we move into response time, I leave you with a closing question. When it comes to Jesus' love for you on the cross your understanding of that, the way you love others. What is Jesus saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the reality of what it means to see through word and deed your love for us. There is never inconsistency in those two areas in your life. And I know that while we are, we are not you, when we talked about this last week, we are not ever called to be you. We are called to become like you. We know that in, in broken and imperfect ways, we can never be as you are in your fullness. But God, in your grace, you make us more like you every day. And I pray the, the tension and the reality of that would be driving our hearts right now as we spend a couple of moments in quiet reflection. This morning, I pray that we would deeply meditate on who we are in you, on how we experience and know the love you have for us. And I pray we would ask ourselves the very real question, How do we love others in light of that? You want us to be a a child who is loved and loves. And I pray, Lord, you would encourage our hearts where we succeed in these areas with you, that you would correct our hearts in areas where we have room to grow. 
but in all these things, you would help us to become more like your son in love and in deed as we leave this place. Bless this time we have now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.